All right, here we are for episode four. Yes. And I am David Rausch, still. You took the words right out of my mouth. I am still Paul Cifuentes. So who are we talking to today? Today we're sharing our conversation with Dan. But I'm going to make a confession on this one. I have always been nervous around how to say Dan's last name. So so you can say it. I'm not saying it. (laughs) Not not with all this pressure now. Dan K. So best case scenario is I pronounce it flawlessly. We move on. I get no credit because I've known him for years and I should know it flawlessly. Worst case is I flub it and then I'm, you know, a horrible friend. Yeah. Uh, What else do we have? That's all I got today. So let's stop embarrassing ourselves and go ahead and just run it. Do it. Oh, we're recording already. All Holy right. cow. Great. This is awesome. I flipped it on that way. There was no there was no awkward moment when you realize we're recording, but nope, we had it anyway. <laughs> so Dan, how are you? I'm doing well. Let's start here. Go back to high school and introduce yourself and describe your high school self. Sure. I grew up in the officially Elmhurst Villa Park area. The address was Elmhurst, but always spent most of my life in Villa Park and Lombard or Lombard, however we are supposed to pronounce that. (laughs) (laughs) We should pause there. How do you, I always said Lombard. Paul, you actually lived in. I think I would, I think I would go either way. It's hard now to give you one. Lombard, Lombard. I think I do it both at different times. <laughs> I, I think it's probably Lombard based on the spelling. Okay, so. right, we're, going, we're going Lombard. Cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I spent most of my time in that neck of the woods and my high school self best described as a kid who overdressed based on grandma's pocketbook of providing large quantities of Abercrombie and Fitch clothing. That <laughs> Excellent. Uh, probably, I don't think that's even a brand anymore, <laughs> but if it is, I don't see the kids wearing it. Yeah. I think it, I think it still is. If it is, I definitely don't own any Abercrombie and Fitch clothing anymore, but that was most of my wardrobe in high school. Was a big fan of sports, but not necessarily the most athletic human being on the planet, which remains true today. So I dabbled in tennis and some intramural type sports, but I was more of the fan spectator of all the athletics of Willowbrook High School more than the actual participant. And my now career dated back to when I was 15 years old. So I spent a long time working for a company that I'm sure we'll get to. I started working at 15. So a lot of my time was spent saving for college and uh, doing work-related activities less than extracurriculars after school. Wow. Personality-wise, what would you say? Like, how would how did you interact with people or how would they have sort of known you in the hallways? I think I was somebody who probably got along with a diverse group of our peers. I didn't necessarily just have one group of friends. Spent a lot of time getting to know different people. We were all in different classes and different things going on in our various focus and education. So I always took it as an opportunity to get to know a lot of people. And we always seem to end up in the same social gatherings, depending on who was hosting what on a given Friday or Saturday night. So you always got to see a lot of different people. I don't know that I had one particular group of friends. I seem to migrate around. Give me a story of one of your fondest memories from high school. The first couple of years of high school, you definitely don't really understand who you are in terms of the boy versus girl dynamic. And then that starts to come together. 
And when I was 16, I think I finally decided that I was cool enough to, to start seeking out those types of relationships. And a young lady came over to my house and we were having a social... Can I just stop and say... I'm really excited to hear where this is going. This, yeah, this is I'm, I'm, I wish... This is, no, this you can't great. say that because I am on the edge of my seat and you just interrupted the story. <laughs> so young lady was over. I think we watched a movie. I don't remember the particular activity, 16 years old. As I was walking her to the door to say goodnight, a different young lady came up the driveway <laughs> to stop by my house and apparently spend some time with me. So at 16, it occurred to me that I was not as cool as I thought I was to be able to manage multiple dates in the same day or evening. And I ended up dating neither of those girls officially. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. Yeah, surprise, surprise. They weren't up for the... Wow. The shift dating. And I see this This is not the point in the interview where we are dropping names. Okay. (laughs) I I felt like that might be appropriate. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the name—I don't know if the names are necessarily important to that story. It's All more right, of the juggling or the lack of juggling from there. And it occurred to me as I looked back on my life, preparing for today, that I met somebody in college and married them, and I'm sure we'll get to all that. But I'm still with that person, so I've not ever really been one to try to juggle multiple relationships. So I learned from that moment at 16 that I should just focus on doing something well, and that would be one thing or person at a time. Yeah. Well, besides failure at polygamy, what would you say, is there any like event that sticks out from like your time at Willowbrook? Yeah. You know, I remember the day that we all gathered in the gym for an assembly to congratulate the badminton team on winning state. And I thought that's such an exciting time for a team to win I didn't even know we had a badminton team. <laughs> so I thought, how exciting for a team to win state, let alone in a sport that I would presume most of my peers had no idea existed, but who knew? I don't remember that. We had so we had a assembly for I remember them winning state. But I don't remember their assembly. Badminton was, was a good. I love was, yeah, yeah, I love badminton. If they won state, they definitely should have got a Oh, absolutely. Got an assembly. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly support that it occurred. I just it occurred to me that I didn't at that moment even know we had a team. But yeah, it's the first time in, in these interviews that we've had talking about an assembly. But that just brings back that whole process of gathering the whole school in a gym. How kind of kind of crazy that is, and just so many people in one area sitting on bleachers for for one purpose. It probably speaks to the. I mean, COVID aside, I don't even know that we met fire requirements at that point for. Well, I think one of the things about the the gym is huge. Like, because we would normally not even use the whole. Like, that's one thing about Willowbrook. And now they have that field house, but like, it's so deep. Like, they built that to host large gatherings originally because they had the first level of stairs, right? That were really long. And then they had the second level. I think it was like a dance studio behind one and gymnastics behind the other. And so, like, we we rarely even use that that level either. It's a it was a pretty big gym. Do you have any favorite teachers that, that come to mind? I do remember two particular teachers that stuck out at me as impactful. The first would be Orv Wilkin. Yes, Orv. Touched a lot of people's lives. So with a career that spanned my dad's generation all the way to mine. So that's pretty impressive for a teacher. He always struck me as somebody who 
was very honest about his life. And I think as I grew up, I realized that you don't always have to put on this facade. You are who you are. And this was a guy who was dyslexic, goes on to leave being a gym teacher to go sell stocks at the Merck, as he called it, the Mercantile Exchange in downtown Chicago, to then return to being a teacher. And yeah. the second teacher I would reference is Bev Kavanaugh, who was just somebody who was not only, a, in my opinion, a fantastic educator, she was actually the one who taught Orvoken how to read because he didn't know how to read when he got <laughs> to Willowbrook. And they were growing up in their mutual careers at the same time. So she was a huge supporter of his personality and the dynamic that he brought to Willowbrook. But, you know, as smart as he was, he was dyslexic and struggled with academics. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I don't, you know, I've not kept up with Bev Kavanaugh in any capacity. So I don't know if she's still with us or not. I, we all know that Orv had passed away some time ago. But so that was unfortunate, actually, right, almost right after he retired. So kind of a bummer to work that hard and amass the wealth that he had created for himself from mutual careers to then pass away at a young age. But you had gym or physical education with Orv or what did you have with him? Physical education as well as he was my driver's ed teacher. Driver's which was ed. Quite, nice. quite, yeah, yeah. Quite in, it's, ama it's amazing. I'm even able to operate a motor vehicle with his type of education. <laughs> and then, Bob Cavanaugh, you had which class with her? So we ha I had British literature with her. And the reason I even was able What year was that? Senior year. So the reason I had her was Mr. Euphrasio opened up a zero hour AP Spanish class. Speaking I of, know. Yeah. I think we were probably in it together. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he worked that out with her because so many people wanted to take British literature that there weren't enough spots in whatever period she normally hosted that. So she opened up a second version of that. And I was able to take her class because I took zero hour AP Spanish, which I reflected on being, I think, 645 in the morning. Yeah. That was a horrible class for me. Hoven. Hovenus. Hovenus. By, by senior year, everything I never came, like second period is when I started. Like mentally or physically you didn't show up until second I, period? I believe I didn't have a first. Oh, no, no, no. That, that can't be right. Maybe. Because I know it might have been. I, I, I feel as though that could have been correct. Because I was in the work period program too, and you were too, right, Dan? So we got to leave halfway through the school day. So I, I didn't join the work program. So the rule was you had to be in class six periods to if you weren't in the work program. And I don't remember why I wasn't. I, it may have been something with Hoist not qualifying. I don't know exactly why. But so I took zero hour through fifth period, and then I left and went to Hoist every day. That's a great transition. So tell us more about so this Hoist is the company you said you started when you were 15. So I was a freshman in high school. My parents said, if you want to drive our car, you have to pay for the gas, insurance, and maintenance. I thought they were kidding. They were serious. They legitimately charged me for all those things. And they said, your grandma got you a job at a small forklift company in Addison, Illinois at the time. Oh, time out. Your grandma got you a job in a... She's buying you Abercrombie and Finch. She's finding you jobs. Your grandma is awesome. She was nannying for the owner of this forklift company's children who were three and one at the time. Wow. And she was bending that gentleman's ear about <laughs> needing her grandson to get a job. Didn't matter what. The job was he just needed to make money. So I got a job at 15. 
That's awesome. So what were you doing at 15? Do you remember? I do. I was supposed to enter cards into a database, business cards for marketing. And the day I started, a lady in their procurement department quit. So they gave me a headset not so dissimilar to this one and a computer. And I started buying parts at 15 to manufacture forklifts. <laughs> wow. Wow. And so you did you enjoy like, did you love that job? Do you love just working? Did you love the how, how is that as a 15 year old? Most 15 year olds aren't doing that kind of job right off the bat. What did you, did you like? What did you like about it? It paid enough for me to cover the expenses that were required to drive the car. And at the time, not many of us had a car. So it was nice to have a car. It served its purpose at 15. I certainly did not have the foresight to think that I would be where I'm at today because of that job. Strange dynamic. So we, you, you touched on you were still doing, I mean, you're connected all the way through. By your senior year, are you still doing the same job you started your freshman year? No, the owner had transitioned me into being more of an assistant to him directly. In addition to the forklift manufacturing business, he had moved the business to the south side of Chicago near Midway Airport. And at that point, he had 24 industrial tenants in a complex of buildings he had bought that were neighboring to his manufacturing building. So I was a landlord collecting rent and managing an industrial real estate complex. At 18. At 18. Wow. Well, I want to get back to that, but let uh, some more just high school things. You Did you go to prom senior year? I did. Do you remember who you went with? At the time, my girlfriend, Brian Davis. There you go. Did it meet your expectations, exceed expectations, fall short? Do you not? you remember going, but do you, I mean, do you remember prom? I do. It was fun. I think it was one of those experiences. I did not go junior year, so it was something that I looked forward to. We went with a group. I remember pictures beforehand and camping afterwards. And the experience was as positive as it could be. I think it was at the Abbey in Glen Ellen or Abington. Yep. Yep. Who from high school have you fallen out of contact with that you wish you could reconnect with? (laughs) Well, outside of Paul. Oh, there you go. Which at least there's an opportunity. (laughs) This is it. This is it. This This is it. You know, honestly, I was incredibly close with Ryan Gawat from the time we were five or six years old. And by the time high school and college ended, we just really lost touch and his life went in different directions. But he was definitely somebody that I was incredibly close with for most of my childhood. All right, Ryan, if you're listening, get in touch. Yeah, we should do that. <laughs> Put it on him. It's your job. <laughs> Dan's not obviously going to do it. So, no, no, right. Right. well, that's why I did this. This was one of those, you know, Dr. Phil moments, right? Somebody listens and then they call, right? Actually, we have Ryan on the line. Would <laughs> <laughs> be sweet. So, I was thinking as you were talking about, you know, your, your grandma buying lots of Abercrombie and stuff, I realized because we recently looked at the the senior pull out polls, you were voted best dressed in high school. So, congratulations on that. Thank you. It was a big accomplishment. Congratulated you. I recall winning because two people walked up to me angry that they didn't (laughs) win. And I wasn't trying. I was dressed for going to hoist every day, which at the time the dress code was a button down shirt and dockers. So that's how I dressed senior year because I was going straight to work from school. So by default, I was in a much more professional type 
it wasn't even the Abercrombie at that point. It was probably a Coles button-down shirt. But regardless, I don't remember the second person, but Kenny Rubitz walked up to me and said, you know, I was trying to win that. And <laughs> I said, I, I didn't know people were actively campaigning to win these various awards. But I, Dave I, was. I, 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 I campaigned for, for best beater, but best dressed that feels harder to campaign for. Where did we vote for that? Just like in the cafeteria? I I think so. Okay. Must have been. Do you feel like that title, like has that helped shape shape you in any way in the future? <laughs> do you think about the way you dress now because of living up? You have to live up to it? I like, do. I do. In full transparency, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get to my current career, but it is very much a professional environment where I generally wear a suit most days. Sweet. All right. Graduation comes and goes. And then what happens next? Went to Elmhurst College. Couldn't get more local than that. Simply because voice will keep coming up throughout this. I wanted to continue working. At that point, I had a potential trajectory on my career that started to come in, make a little bit more sense. Had desired a little bit more than just managing real estate. So started doing some accounting work and took a liking to forklifts, which certainly at 15, I wouldn't have had any desire to say I liked forklifts, but my life has definitely taken me down that path. So I, I went to school locally and worked 35, 40 hours a week and you know the normal course load at Elmhurst still at that point was dating Brian. She was at U of I in Champaign. So tried to make that work for a couple of years, long distance relationships. I God bless anybody who can do it. It was not something that we were successful at. So that ended about halfway through college, you know, played the field, so to speak, and just kind of focused on school and hanging out with my friends, working. At that point, I had a full-blown addiction to the Dave Matthews Band and was touring most summers coast to coast, checking out their concerts. So, whoa, full. So, like, how many how many concerts a summer are we talking? Like nine, nine, nine per summer. Yeah. Oh wow. So what was your what was what was your go-to song at a concert then? You know, songs that most people probably don't know unless you're one yeah, of these. Yeah, I mean, that's what got me hurt, man. I like the song You Never Know. Mm-hmm. You Never Know. Not a hit, necessarily. <laughs> Where was your favorite place that you saw them perform? Believe it or not, Alpine Valley in Wisconsin is a favorite venue. So that was a close one for us. Second to that would be the Gorge in George Washington, east of Seattle. So it's a naturally formed mountainous type plateau. There's a CD out of there too, right? Or no? Probably. Yeah, there is. There is. So they used to go there when bands were touring every year, but <laughs> haven't been to a concert in quite a while, but it was definitely a big part of college for me. So is that is that fandom still still with you? It is. I had just been to so many shows that I burned myself out. I ended up at 27 total concerts in my lifetime for them. And 2014 was the last time I went to a show. And okay, you have a, a DMB tattoo on your lower back, right? <laughs> Dang it, I, I am one of the few face. that do not. No. Uh, <laughs> Many of I'm my like, friends do, though. Yeah. <laughs> I think you, you had a temporary tattoo on your lower back of Dave Matthews Band for a time, right? I did not, no. One of those uh, water... Tattoo-free at 37 years of age. No tattoos. There you go. All right. So college, you accounting? So an undergraduate, bachelor's in accounting, 
And as I was graduating from Elmhurst, the owner of Hoist said, if you stick around, I'll pay for your MBA. So I couldn't pass up that opportunity. After putting myself through through four years of college, it was nice to have somebody offer to help. So I agreed to stay, was able to just continue on at Elmhurst. They weren't super happy about it, but there were some program rules that required you to have a certain level of work experience. I negotiated my way into the program. You were supposed to graduate from undergrad and then take three years of true work experience, but I felt that I had it. I said, I think I can hold my own in your NBA program, and they gave me a shot. So I stayed and spent the next two years earning my MBA at Elmhurst. And you were living at home this whole time? I did. I thought about getting an apartment, but my parents were pretty relaxed about my schedule and they fed me and did my laundry and I still had a bed to sleep in. So there wasn't a whole lot of incentive to go create a rent expense when I had a pretty leisure life in that regard. All right. MBA, still at hoist, still at home. You are now 25? 24, 25. In that process, had met a woman who was the same age as me and had gone to Elmhurst for undergrad. We were familiar with each other, but didn't really know each other that well and ended up in the same MBA program on the same night. I was late to class the first night. So they had already formed groups by the time I got there. And I got put in this lady's group when we were 22. So starting the MBA program. And she is my wife today. Wait, so she was also 22? She was. So she. So had how did a, she get around the three-year rule? She mm. apparently had some type of similar negotiation, or maybe mm. it wasn't as hard as I thought to the get into the He's like, on second thought, anyone willing to pay tuition to get in. <laughs> Give us your money, we'll let you in the class. No, but that's we were, cool. So you started dating during the MBA program? Towards the end of her tenure at Elmhurst, I still had a semester to go. Cool. And then when did you get married? In 2014. So we dated for seven or eight years. Okay. So was the wedding at one of your last Dave Matthews band concerts? Is that? It was not. It was at the Bellagio in Las Vegas. Wow. Okay. Jumped all the way to 2014. I don't know if there's anything you want to hit from Hoist or anything else in your life before before you get there or just pick up the story there. You know, Hoist was a year over year growth opportunity. I did a lot of different jobs within the company, bounced around and learned the business from just about every angle and stayed pretty loyal to the then owner of the business. And my wife graduated the same degree as me, spent a little bit of time in IT. And then she took that degree to CBS television, where she spent 11 years. We lived in St. Charles, Illinois. She, again, being the overachiever of the relationship, had moved out of her parents' house and bought a townhouse. We lived in Sin for a long time in her townhouse. I, you know, I paid my fair share, but it was definitely her place. And then we bought a house in Geneva, Illinois in 2013. Okay. At some point along the way, we decided we wanted to start a family. The old-fashioned route that we learned about in seventh grade health class did not work out so well for us. So we ended up in the IVF route, which if anyone who's listening has been through, they certainly know what that's like. And if you haven't, I, I wish and hope for you that you never have to go through that. Very challenging, a lot of ups and downs a miscarriage along the way, but we were very fortunate. Last embryo took after a pretty exhausting process where my wife was considering adoption at the same time trying to go through IVF. And we ended up negotiating that we need to stop trying to serve two masters here and let's just focus on IVF. And unfortunately, it worked. So we 
today I have an almost three-year-old son that we're very grateful for. But in the process, I think Tess realized that corporate life wasn't something she necessarily wanted to do anymore. So finished maternity leave, went back to CBS, and her second week back called me and said, uh, I don't want to do this anymore. I have a business plan, a product, and I'm going to cash in my stock options and start my own company. And I said, okay, and hung up the phone. She started a children's book business focused on IVF through the eyes of a child. That's cool. So you're not in Geneva anymore? We are not. So after me saying the word hoist about 20 times on this call, in 2019, the owner of Hoist executed an agreement to sell his entire manufacturing business to Toyota. In addition to being one of the leading car manufacturers, Toyota is the largest forklift manufacturer in the world. The one thing they didn't have in their portfolio was the type of product that we built at Hoist, which is a very large forklift that picks up somewhere between 20 and 100,000 pounds. Since you're saying we now stayed with the company through the transition, you're now working for Toyota instead of Hoist. I am. And then they needed you to relocate? Is that how you ended in Indiana? I did. So Toyota's headquarters for North America is in Columbus, Indiana, which is about an hour south of Indianapolis. So I had been pseudo-commuting between Chicago and Columbus for about a year. Then they asked me to officially commute from a little bit shorter distance and become part of their management team. Have you gotten to go to Japan? That's where they're based. I have. Correct. Yeah. The corporate headquarters is in Takahama, Japan. I spent a week there in October of 2019. Grateful that I got to go when I did because there's not much international travel going on these days. Yeah. So, wow. Thanks for thanks for kind of us bringing us to pre- present day through all of that. Just wanted to reflect a little bit about where we were, you know, 20 years ago now and, and maybe where we are now. What would you, you think your 18-year-old self would think of you today? You know, I think in life, you have a lot of choices. And it occurs to me that my career path is somewhat unique in our society. One where I stuck with an organization from an early age, despite acquisition, still technically with that same organization. It's somewhat of a family dynamic. My parents spent 50 years working for Jewel Grocery Store in Chicago and inherently in my DNA. So I think my 18 year old self would be happy that I stuck with something that I had a passion for, and I never gave up on that opportunity because it's led to places I never thought I'd I'd be in my life from from a leadership standpoint and an opportunity to impact markets and participate in some pretty cool things with a company as large as Toyota. It certainly wouldn't have been a a job I saw myself in at 15. Yeah, no, I think you're right on. Like it's very, that's very counter what our, you know, as being the oldest millennials, the average millennial is however many years you're in a job, it's like three or five or you go through so many jobs and yeah, you stayed with one, one company. That's awesome. Do you think your 18 year old self would so ultimately be impressed with your 38-year-old self or disappointed somewhere in the middle? Like, If you can remember what your expectations were for your life, do you think, how do you think you've fallen against those? I think the 18-year-old self would be, would be satisfied. I always had a business-minded focus. I never wanted to own my own business. I always saw myself working in someone else's. So yeah, overall, I think the 18-year-old self would be pretty satisfied. Question we ask everybody, and I'm interested to hear your approach is, have you thought about how you're going to approach parenting your son when he's in high school? 
You know, I, th- I think if you do the heavy lifting now, if you put some discipline in place when they're the age, my saying, you know, he's three. So there's discipline, right? There's time out. There's the removal of things that he wants in his life that he sees fit for adding value. If you manage those expectations now, I'm of the opinion, and we'll see if I'm right 15 years from now or, or 10 years from now. I think he'll make good choices because he was forced to understand that there are consequences for your actions, good and bad, in life. And my wife and I are aligned on that. So he spends, you know, a fair amount of time <laughs> learning from the mistakes that three-year-olds make. And I'm sure they only get harder to manage in terms of the mistakes get bigger and bigger and cost more and more tangibly, financially, emotionally. But I'm confident that if we stay the course on that, that by the time he's in high school, he'll have a foundation where he'll make decisions. They won't all be right, but he'll have a a conscience that can help him along the way. To play on that a little bit more, if you think of the way your parents parented in high school, what's something that you want to copy that maybe they did that you think, you know, when your son is, is in high school that you'll run the same playbook and then maybe something you'll do a little different? I think work ethic is important. You know, I, it occurs to me that despite the world evolving, it's hard to not want to spoil your children. We, you know, we work for what we have, but there has to be some level of focus that it won't last forever and nothing's guaranteed. And frankly, nobody owes us anything. So whatever we have is because we worked for it and we earned it and that's how it should be. So I want to make sure he has a foundation where he knows that nothing's handed to him. Uh, It doesn't mean he can't have a good upbringing and have some nice things along the way. But at some point, the value of money is going to be important and that he understands that what we have comes from the effort that we put into this life. And he'll need to start earning his own way. I'm not a big fan of the family payroll extending on for young people that end up in their late 20s and 30s on mom and dad's payroll. I think we have to stand on our own two feet. So I want to make sure he has that foundation. And that's something your parents did, right? I mean, you kind of mentioned paying for the car and you paid for college. So, And something different that you asked about, I think in my mind, I want him to think he's paying for college. And then I'd love to be able to see him finish and say, well, it's actually taken care of. But I don't want him to go through college thinking that it's free. I want him to pay his way because the loans don't start accruing interest until you graduate. And then we write the check on graduation day. But I think he'll value the education more if he knows that it's his money that's contributing or his future money that's going to be paying for it. So he can never listen to this podcast. He cannot, no. (laughs) At least least not until he graduates college. Just like, listen to it with me, son, and then we're going to fast forward the last... (laughs) (laughs) Nice. What's a belief that you held fairly strongly back in your high school that has now changed? I grew up primarily having Christian friends. And I don't know if that was just by default or, you know, the people that I ended up being friends with. In my adult life, I end up in social settings where I have Jewish friends and friends that practice no religion and friends that are Hindu and Muslim. And it occurs to me that when you zoom out, the the fundamental belief structure is really the same across all of those different religious settings. And having traveled to other parts of the world, it occurs to me that the golden rule applies to everything in life. And attempting to be a good person and treat people the way you want to be treated is actually fairly well documented in most religious 
core books, you know, the Bible, the Torah, all of those have that same fundamental belief. I didn't realize that as a young person, really only being exposed to Christian beliefs. And it's broadened my horizon in life, realizing that there's more views and not everybody shares the same complete belief structure, but the core of those faith-based approaches are the same. Is there anything that you know now that you wish you would have known then? You know, I think the most important piece of information that I've picked up is to not stress about every moment. I think it's, you know, high school is one of those treacherous slopes where you're told that you have to pass all these tests and then you have to get into a good college and all those things add value. They certainly propel you forward in life, but we spend a lot of time, particularly in our younger years, stressing about individual moments. And when you look at your life today and all the things that you've experienced, you realize that it's not worth the stress that we put ourselves under in those particular moments. And you know, just very briefly, one thing I didn't touch on is in October of this year, out on a family trip to a pumpkin patch two hours north of my house, my wife collapsed in what I thought was a heart attack in the middle of a cornfield picking pumpkins. And this is a woman who's in shape, runs marathons, doesn't smoke, eats all the right things, collapsed out of nowhere, ends up in the hospital, then goes into cardiac arrest and flatlines. And I'm told that she might not make it in a coma. Four days later, she came home. Today, she has an implantable defibrillator that is there as an airbag in the event that it ever happened again. No cardiologist can figure out why it happened or what caused it. And the moral of that story is, is what I was saying before, which is just enjoy every moment and don't stress about every little thing that happens because it can be gone in a heartbeat. And it's really helped me redirect my most present thoughts in life about focusing on what matters most. Time with people, the gathering of assets and all of those things is part of life, but it's not ultimately what's going to make me happy in the end. Wow. That's crazy. So is there something, you know, if we were talking about, you know, you're figuring out what makes you happy, is there something that you've discovered that you can kind of actively do to make yourself happier? You know, work from home in the midst of all of this has presented a lot more time with my family. And prior to the pandemic, I traveled a lot. So moments with your family that you can't truly create on FaceTime or phone calls or text messages are the ones that occur from being home. So I'm grateful that I've stayed employed, that I'm doing well physically, emotionally throughout this crazy time in our lives. But the best gift has been you can shut it down at five o'clock and in my case, go up five stairs and be with my family for the rest of the evening. Yeah, that's great. Is there something right now that you're actively trying to improve in your life? My personal health, you know, when you're traveling all the time, it's really hard to exercise like you want to. So working from home, I've created a much better health setup. My wife has been incredibly supportive of how we eat and what we eat and making sure I get on that exercise bike behind me here on the the video on a very regular basis and started doing yoga. All those little things, you know, that just to keep you mentally focused on what matters most. Turns out all those little things actually do matter. What's something on your bucket list that you haven't crossed off yet? You know, with the exception of a couple island trips with my wife and a week in Japan, I have not done much international travel. So I want to commit to my family and, and to myself that after this 
pandemic is over and it's a little bit easier to move about, that we need to make that a focus for future vacations. Because I think there's a lot to be learned from the world outside these borders. And you can't do that if you don't truly experience it. And you'll never truly grasp the culture of somebody else's life by just spending a week there. But you get glimpses of the rest of the world. And I know lots of people who have enjoyed that type of travel. It was just never part of my childhood. My family's version of travel was driving you know, to Tennessee to visit a relative. So, And that worked for them. I'm hoping to do a little bit more than that. We had a bonus question here. What are you afraid of? Hmm. Questions like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Questions you know, out uh, of the blue that I wasn't prepped for. <laughs> being unprepared for, for a podcast about my life. You know, I, I think a lot of fears have subsided in life when you face different challenges along the way. One thing that I'm, I'm probably not prepared for is, and I don't think anybody could be prepared for this, I know a lot of people recently that have had loss of children. And I don't think anyone could ever be prepared for what that would look like. And I've heard people's stories and we're all fathers and I, you know, that's a fear. You know, I never had that fear before. And I've lost other relatives that were older and, you know, some younger, but they were never my children. So I'm, I'm grateful that I've not gone through that, but it's definitely something that when you're sending your child out into the world, and it occurs to me, the older they get, the less control I will have, and anything can happen on any day. So I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. So that's, that's definitely a fear. So true. I, I feel it exactly just like that. I mean, again, as they get older and you know, your son being three is, is close, so you, pretty much one of the parents or grandparents or somebody has an eye on him all the time, and that begins to change as he goes out and plays and friends and then off to school and events and good Lord gets a driver's license. Scary. Starts paying for his own car insurance. That's, all those things. That's right. If you can just keep him in a job, that's 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 half the reason they wanted you to get a job was just to make sure you weren't getting into other trouble. That's my guess. <laughs> I'm fairly <laughs> confident you're right. Anything that we didn't ask you that you feel like we should or areas you want to touch on? No, I think you got you got high school through this very moment in my life. I appreciate you both putting this together and I look forward to the final results. Yeah, this was great. Thanks for sharing everything and hanging out with us. Thanks, Dan. Good to see you.